0: My reflection is that this is the biggest development disaster in certainly in my lifetime, probably ever in history. It has reversed development at a greater pace than ever in history. It has derailed the SDGs, and that's what the consciousness should be about, not that Africa's got off lightly.
1: Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Before we start, we want to issue a disclaimer. Conversations hosted by PageCast are happening from all corners of the world. So, if we do have any inconsistencies with sound, we ask for your understanding as a listener.
2: It's also a jewel and a wonderful privilege for me to be able to welcome all of you to the public book launch of Rescue from Global Crisis to a Better World by Ian Golden. Arianna Huffington calls Rescue essential reading. Former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown says it is a fresh and penetrating insight from one of the great authorities on globalization. Uh, Vim de Villiers says, read it. (laughs) and Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, says rescue gives us hope. And I think we can all agree that we live in times now when that is something we are in dire need of. In the introduction to rescue, uh, Ian makes a few bold statements and he asks some difficult questions. He says, the world will be different after COVID-19. The question is, will it be sufficiently Different. And also, the pandemic has provided a unique opportunity to clarify our priorities. And while the idea of radical reform is worrying to many, what I am proposing is far less scary than the prospect of business as usual. So the point of it being that business as usual has indeed gotten society to this very precarious place where we're in at the moment. So I very much look forward to hearing these further insights, and he will be in conversation with Professor Edgar Peterson, a fellow STIAS fellow, who is the founding director Director of the African Center for Cities, the ACC at the University of Cape Town, and holds the South African Research Chair in Urban Policy, and his research and teaching explores urban development politics, everyday culture, publics, radical social economies, responsive design, and adaptive governance systems. So welcome to both of you, and I really look forward to the conversation.
1: Thank you so much, uh, uh, Rector. Thank you so much for the invitation to be in conversation with Ian, we've only met virtually what was it, a couple of months ago by Trevor Manuel, mutual friend And uh, but of course I've been aware of Ian's work for a long time and I note on your CV you don't list your coloured book, which uh, as a young radical student at UWC of course was compulsory reading because within the ANC and the democratic movement, race politics was always a thorny issue and a very difficult thing to discuss. So I do feel I've known Ian for a very, very long time and as someone who studied, sort of trained in Development Studies as well, of course. It's been impossible to not engage with his work. So what a privilege to be asked to read Rescue closely. And if you, like me, somehow there's this uh, inverse relationship between being a professor and reading. You'd never read, basically. It's the most bizarre thing. So to have a chance to read a book from cover to cover in these times was absolutely wonderful. And what a read it's been. I guess my first remark, Ian, is, you know, (coughs) thank God there are people like you. The rest of us cowered down for the first 18 months of the pandemic. Ian decided, I'm going to make sense of all of this and put it into this uh, really expansive clinical analysis based on whatever was available data that's around, but also very much propositional. And as I was working through the book over the weekend, I was trying to put my finger on why it felt like such an important intervention. And there's three qualities to it. One is the book you feel like you're in conversation with Ian. It's very conversational in its tone, but that's just to seduce you into the analysis, because actually it is underpinned by really, really vast amounts of empirical data so that we can begin to decipher some of the trends. Secondly, the book is both grounded, it's realist, but it's also hopeful, as Wim has already indicated. And it is trying to help us understand what are the unprecedented opportunities to act decisively so that we can begin to address so many of the many issues that have bedeviled the global economy that is confounding us in terms of the future of the worlds of work, the differential impacts of technology, the barbarization of politics, the significance of attending to mental health questions, especially at a societal scale, and rethinking where we live, where we work, how we learn, and how do we move around in the places where we live, i.e. cities. And all of this to come to terms and to recognize that we also have to come to terms with the bigger existential threat of climate change and biodiversity loss. But the third part, which I've already intimated is that it's not just that it's diagnostic, it's not just that it is indicative, but it is decidedly propositional. Ian is putting forward a whole bunch of very specific claims about what a radical reform or radical transformative politics could look like. And what I appreciated about it is that it's not just that he sets that out, but he actually builds a rubric for accountability. He indicates that these are the differential responsibilities of different stakeholders and actors with power in our society to move this agenda forward. And I think that that's really superb. So Ian, if I may ask you to sort of kick us off, to maybe share with us when the rest of us were cowering in our basement, you know, why you felt the urge to write this book (laughs) And uh, and and how would you summarize the main takeaways before we get into some of the substantive themes in the book?
0: Thank you so much, uh, Egger, for agreeing to do this um, discussion, for reading the book so carefully, and for summarizing it in a way which I think is much more effective than I could do. But let me try. So, why did I write this book, Uh, and what are the main messages? The first thing I had to do when the pandemic stuck was finish another book, which is the book that stuck, Terra Incognita, which is the one that's uh, stuck in customs, which is this very big book, um, which is uh, basically identifying the key trends that are going to define our future with maps and infographics and visualizations. And I managed to get that out of the way, and then the question was, what do you make sense of this? And in what way do these trends that I had spent the previous two years working on get affected? by this devastating pandemic. I had also written in 2013 a book called The Butterfly Defect, Why Globalization Creates Systemic Risks and What to Do About It, in which I predicted the pandemic, and said that this was inevitably going to be the next global crisis, major proportions, and I'd been banging on about it since then. And again, in a whole lot of other ways, in my BBC series, in a book called Age of Discovery, where I compare our time to the Renaissance, I argued the same thing, that this hyper-connectivity which has been the source of progress, of unprecedented magnitudes, reductions in poverty, improvements in life expectancy, increases in information, the liberation of people from a history of servitude, mentally and physically around the world, was also the source of our undoing, unless we manage it more effectively. And it's that sense, which I've been working on for almost 10 years by the pandemic strike, <laughs> of the need to do things very differently that was my primary motivation in writing the book. The feeling, not so much that I told you it would happen, but that this has to be the wake-up call that leads us out of this, what I fear would be a rather dystopian future, unless we grapple with the underbelly of what some would call globalization which is flows across national borders of goods of people of ideas of data of everything and of course of germs uh, of bacteria of viruses it's that hyperconnectivity which is both liberation the reason South Africa is free and we're here today. It would not have happened if the Berlin Wall had not come down, if there hadn't been sanctions, if there hadn't been an international support for the ANC, etc., etc. We wouldn't be here. One has to recognize that this is the most progressive force in the history of humanity. That's why I worry about people that want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say globalization is the source of the pandemic, the source of climate change, because too many people are climbing the energy curve. Let's stop it. That would be to put us back, and jumping ahead, to what Russia is trying to do with Ukraine. We have to be able to manage this. We have to be able to understand it in order to manage it. And what the book is about is part analysis of where COVID has had an impact on multiple dimensions, and there's not a dimension of our lives that it hasn't had. So I talk about incomes and inequality, employment. I talk about the future of work and remote work, therefore the future of cities, the future of offices. I talk about Mental health, as you mentioned, I talk about the future of businesses, of climate change, and crucially of how we stop the next pandemic. Uh, And it's that trying to weave together in a way that is accessible those arguments that gives us this book. I've written, you know, as you mentioned, twenty-three books. I think I've had real impact with many of them, and I try to do this one in a different way for two reasons. One is I did it almost totally alone sitting at home most of my other books i had had research assistants, i had libraries i had, had lots of other things to do this was basically done by me surfing the web uh, at home alone so that made it different in the research methodology but i also wanted to be different in the sense of appealing to a wider audience mm-hmm. not an academic book and if any of you find anything in the book that's jargon or that you can't read come and tell me so that the next edition i can take it out i wanted a Book that would make sense to readers. I wanted a book to be hopeful because I am hopeful. I think we're in the best place in human history in trajectory. Of course, the Ukraine is disastrous, the pandemic is disastrous, but in the long sweep of history, we're in a much better place than we were before, not least in South Africa, but in many places. People I felt haven't appreciated that. That means we've got much more to lose, and it's that loss. In terms of the main arguments, my biggest concern is the language I was hearing of bouncing back, bouncing forward. This which we now see more intensely because we're also relieved the pandemic is over. That's what worried me most because that implies we go back onto the tracks that are leading us over a precipice. That inevitably means We will have more pandemics, we will have escalating climate change, growing inequality, and all the negatives that are associated with globalization. Other language, like a reset, which is the World Economic Forum's language, also worries me. When we reset our computers, we go back to the operating systems that were. That's a disaster. So, we need to do something different, and the book is basically a manifesto for what that is. It also draws a lot on history, not least the Second World War. Crises are best avoided. They are horrible times. People suffer desperately, and we all know people who have suffered desperately because of the pandemic. And when we turn on our TV screens, we see the horrors of what's happening in Ukraine. But crises, if they lead to a better world, might be worth the suffering that is endured. If they don't, then that is the real tragedy. And that's what happened with the financial crisis.
1: Thanks, Ian. And just to say that I thought the the historical perspective was really helpful, I think, to contextualise and that device and, and sort of structures of the argument worked really well. But I am curious. I think you must have finished the book sort of one year into the pandemic. Um, there's been so much... Flux and change in the last year, as societies have adapted in various spe- at various speeds, we've also seen a repetition of the differential access to vaccines, the continuation of the sort of the inequalities around that, and the effects of that, of course. Um, and that was all before uh, Putin's latest adventure. So I'm curious if you, you know, when you do the second edition, if if you've got to start putting that together tomorrow, are there things in that sort of overall argument that you would, are there things you'll emphasise differently, or are there things with the benefit of hindsight that you would, that you think you might have gotten wrong, or that the, yeah, that, that you would would sort of develop in another way in the book? I'm just curious what your reflections are.
0: I ask myself that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, this paperback, which is the book that's on sale here, was only printed in January. So the publishers gave me the opportunity. okay. Like in December, they called me and said, normally there's a year between a hardback and a paperback. This time it was only five months. And they said, is there anything you want to change for the paperback? So I went through the book and I discussed it with the publishers and I decided there was nothing mm-hmm. material that I changed. Of course, there's new data, the numbers are different, etc. But there's nothing immaterial in the book on the pandemic, and that remains the case, that I feel I got wrong, or I'd want to change. The big new information is, of course, Ukraine mm-hmm. and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I would want to say something about that, because it's on people's minds, and they want to know how it affects what I'm saying. I don't think it changes the basic narrative. I think it reinforces it. A war that arises out of failure to recognize businesses usually is going to lead to disaster. People have been saying this. My friend, uh, Gary Kasparov, has been screaming about this. So, so
1: Ian and I, of course, given where we are in Silembosch on the African continent, um, I think the few questions I'll pose to you um, will, will mainly be to try and tease out what sense we can make of, of the impacts of the pandemic and the possibilities uh, from this perspective. When I read the data, one of the curiosities about the impact of COVID has been the relatively benign public health impacts in many African countries despite the absence of uh, vaccines, of uh, uh, sort of uh, protective measures, of capacity within the public health systems, and very short lockdowns because, of course, uh, that was economically simply unviable because most people are in the informal economy and uh, live on a day-to-day existence. Um, so, so I am curious, and that does seem in terms of the trends in the other world regions to be somewhat anomalous, what your reflections are of that and what's we, we can make of that and, and, and what some of the policy implications for Africa might be.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced by the argument that the pandemic has been more benign in Africa. I would, if you look at the excess death numbers, for what one could call a P-statistic, comparing excess mortality over normal mortality rates across countries, that... Statistic is no better for African countries that, I've, that, that have any sort of credible data on excess <laughs> deaths than the excess death data that are, that for the advanced economies. Now, others, including the rector, are far better qualified to comment on health matters than I am. But I'm not convinced that the low mortality rates we're seeing in some of the published data reflect the real fact. It's not, excess deaths, of course, not only COVID 19 mm-hmm. direct. It's the crippling of health services. It's the failure to get out the malaria bed nets. It's lots of second order ramifications that come from COVID-19. But that's also true in the UK and in other countries. In the UK, we have a waiting list now of 5 million operations because of COVID-19. The, you know, so it's not just that COVID-19 is killing people. It's that they're dying of cancer or they're dying of a heart or any other things that would have been treated without it. That's simply looking at the health. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the non-health or directly health things and you look at the second order implications on inequality, on poverty, on nutrition. The World Bank's estimating that 140 million more people have been pushed into dire poverty that's living under $1.90 a day by the pandemic. The World Food Programme is estimating 160 million more people are suffering acute malnutrition. And that's before the food price hikes we're about to see coming through the system because of Ukraine. And then you think about the mortality and, other, and you think of all sorts of second-order implications in terms of girls' education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't buy the argument that Africa's been less affected. I actually think it's been much more affected than the advanced economies, and that's because the governments don't have the capacity to help. There's been no $20 trillion rollout of fiscal and monetary stimulus. In other words bankrolling societies, which the rich countries, the OECD countries, have found. $20 trillion. That is eight times the total size of the African economy, just in support for the citizens of the rich countries. Workers being paid not to go to work, furlough schemes and so on. Businesses being closed, paid not to close down. Free rollout of testing kits, everything. I mean, this is the biggest government intervention ever in history. That is not happening in the poor countries and in the middle-income countries. They just can't afford it. Which means the longer-term growth implications are going to be much more severe in low- and middle-income countries. My reflection is that this is the biggest development disaster in certainly my lifetime, most probably ever in history. It has reversed development at a greater pace than ever in history. It has derailed the SDGs. And that's what the consciousness should be about, not that Africa's got off lightly.
1: Thanks, that's really helpful. And it connects very much to the next point. So some of the proposals you put forward, you know, sort of as clearly centers around a much more interventionist role for government. So you refer to wealth taxes, you refer to much more ambitious debt relief, solidarity-driven rescue packages, stronger and bigger safety nets, mass reskilling, retraining of workers in redundant occupations. Um, You're talking about the importance of supporting the transition away from extractive to sustainable economies um, on the back of technological innovation and so forth. And at the same time, you do recognize that these are very difficult things for governments with a very bad credit We know we've got at least 25 LDCs still in Africa. We've got probably another 20 lower-middle-income countries. Um, So the norm is highly restricted uh, sort of tax bases and fiscal frameworks. Now, at some point in the book, you suggest that there might be some kind of solidarity component to the rescue packages to the $20 trillion you're talking about. Um, But you don't sort of really elaborate that. And I was curious, how do African governments, sort of what is the call to action you're putting to African governments? government's given this constraint and how should we rethink or how should we think in more concrete terms about what this means for the common African market for agenda 2063 and so forth so if you could maybe just elaborate a little bit
0: well I think I mean amongst the many problems uh, that need to be resolved is the total collapse of solidarity Mm -hmm. globally we see it in vaccination rates Uh, 14% of low and middle income countries have been double vaccinated compared to now approaching 80% of high income countries. And by the way, South Africa is very poor in this regard as well. About 30% double vaccination, same as Egypt, more or less. But some countries, Nigeria, less than 10%. Okay. There's, 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 it's both the supply, the failure of COVAX and everything, but it's also a a demand issue. So there's been, so the one thing we need to sort out for future is African capability to manufacture and distribute cold store, et cetera, vaccines. That is a massive failure. It took far too long. If it was African, there would also be more public acceptance. I think there's a lot of what we're seeing is sort of partly related to uncertainties regarding trials that have been conducted elsewhere. A second massive failure has been on the financial front. While the rich countries have found $20 trillion for themselves, less than $100 billion, so a tiny fraction of 1%, have been found for development. This is in sharp contrast to even the financial crisis of 2008- 2009, when George W. Bush and then Gordon Brown called meetings and there were very large mobilizations about 10% of what the rich countries found for themselves, they sent. So this is less than a hundredth of that response. One can ask the question, why? But that the G20, the G7, whatever G's there are, (laughs) have failed completely uh, in this. So we need a massive mobilization of aid. And it'll be even bigger because of what's coming out of Ukraine. The third thing we need is a debt restructuring countries have reached the limits of their fiscal capacity. In other words, they've taken on as much debt as they can to deal with the consequences of COVID-19. You know, South Africa trying to give a basic income grant to, temp- to people even on a temporary basis, putting up temporary hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And this is across all low and middle income countries, not only in Africa, India, mm-hmm. Pakistan, Bangladesh, Latin American, and others too. But that means there's no more space to invest in the future. There's no more space for education, for health, for infrastructure, for all the other things that you need for development. The only solution is a debt restructuring. The IMF estimates 36 countries very close to debt default, including some very close by here, like Zambia. The only solution is a restructuring of debt. That can be done. It's been done before. I was involved in the previous debt restructuring negotiations. It's complicated, but it can be done if there's the political will.
1: So in the chapter on cities, in makes, connects a number of dots uh, in terms of working from home and the changing cultures and work patterns around that. Our property markets on the commercial side have been restructured and how different uh, mobility patterns emerge as a result of that, all pointing to the fact that we can achieve much greater much greater productivity and we can optimize space and land markets and so forth if we really imagine um, a different work-life balance and we really put well-being at the center of rethinking the future of cities and how we live and so on. All fantastic. And then there's this one, and I have to pull out this quote because it it tickled me. He, He then sort of points to one of the problems being these large property empires, quote unquote. Um, so the idea that we've got to unbundle the existing sort of real estate machines is obviously, you know, I can't agree with you more. It's a really tantalizing prospect. But in many, many cities, this is precisely what oils the political machine. And, of course, we know a lot of city governments also depend on those investments in terms of their local tax bases. Yeah, could you just sort of say a little bit more about how we could concretize that? And I understand your reference point, the data you were drawing almost in the UK and, and some of the American cities. Um, but yeah, I'd love to sort of uh, yeah a bit more about how we can imagine the the dismantling of large property empires.
0: Our mutual friend Trevor Manuel, who I respect enormously, and for those of you that are not from South Africa, he was the former finance minister, amongst many other things. Um, but when he introduced us, he said, because my next book is on related to this question, he said, speak to Edgar. He knows everything you need to know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Now you're asking me the question. Um, and, I, and, and I completely agree with Trevor's judgment. So, you know, it's quite rich you asking me this question. But the first thing to say is that cities are the lifeblood of our future. There's no nothing that we can think about whether it's resolving pandemics, climate change, or anything else, that is not going to be played through the city space. And cities are going to be both the solution and the problem space. People are going to die of starvation or they're going to solve the problems in the city. How we think about the viability of cities really, really matters. The, The idea that people basically flee cities, the rich flee cities, and go and work remotely threatens fundamentally the viability of cities. I don't think it'll happen for various reasons. It'll also, be, by the way, destroy productivity and creativity. There's no accident that we have Silicon Valley in Silicon Valley. It's the coming together of people that could changes the world, not the dispersal. We can debate that long. My worry is that the, the public transport systems of the major cities are now facing bankruptcy and we can enter a death spiral. But Property markets are related to this. Obviously, the valuations are changing in quite fundamental ways. The people that control supply and demand, and I don't know enough about South Africa to be able to comment on South Africa. You you are the expert, genuinely, on this. But I can speak to what's happening in the UK and some of the US markets in Spain. You have some investors including some big financial firms who now have tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of properties on their balance sheet they control the feed in and out and prices rentals sale prices when you have that situation you have a very dangerous situation thanks Ian (laughs) these processes of change are extremely complex dynamic but they do move All the time and fast. And if you can be part of that and move it in the direction that you feel more comfortable with, that's good. I hope that when the history of this period of time is written in generations to come, they will look back on this period like we look back at the Second World War and say something happened to change the course of history. Like they look back on the late 80s and early 90s, whether it's in China, whether it's in Europe, or elsewhere, and certainly in South Africa, and say that was a period where our views changed and history changed.